0: It's it's it was never in my mind that I would pastor a church. That was the furthest thing from my mind. And today I can honestly tell you it's a joy, one of the greatest privileges of my life to pastor a church. Primarily because every every Sunday, every personal engagement, I have the opportunity to just talk with people about Jesus. And ultimately that's what this session is about. This whole conference of course is about sanctification, paths to holiness practical ways that we can grow in Christ-likeness. This session is called, I Need a Hero. Uh, I think the subtitle is The worn Path, or maybe the title is The worn Path, I Need a Hero. and And the focus, as described on the website, and this was assigned to me, so... The assignment I was given was to answer some of these questions. Is having a hero of the faith appropriate for disciples of Jesus? Should we be imitating the faith of others? Is considering the pattern and habits of fellow saints a legitimate path toward righteousness? Come and be challenged by Paul's exhortation, Philippians 3.17, to keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. This topic can be handled legalistically, but considering the way of life of trusted leaders and imitating their faith... Is a well-traveled path leading to a life sanctified by the unchanging Jesus. And and that's what I want to draw your attention to at the beginning and at the end and hopefully all through. That the only capital H hero we have, the only capital E example, the only capital L leader that really will pan out for us is, is our Savior. But along the way, there are others who can help us be like him and see more of him and... Um, uh, draw, draw closer to Him. Live our lives in a way that will advantage every opportunity we have to to know Him. And so, we'll have our eyes on some other leaders, small l, some some men, just like us. And I want to encourage you. Um, maybe by the end of this session, to decide I will I will study the life of someone, probably someone who's died, someone who has passed on, who lived in a way his life produced fruit. He left a great legacy. And that's a practical model that has some transfer effect in my own life. So I want to encourage you to draw near maybe a saint of old, and, and that's kind of the front-loaded application. But why don't we pray? And then we can start with the lyrics from a song from the 1980s. Ready? Father, thank you so much for the ministry of Brian Chapel in the Word. Thank you that he is merely a herald pointing to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that every one of us can be that. And every one of us is supposed to be that. And so I pray that by the end of this day, in the end of this conference, we would be utterly enamored. Absolutely gripped. Totally amazed at the grace and glory of the man, Jesus of Nazareth, who lived and died and conquered all death and all sin and all enemies who could come against us so that we can live and never die. So I pray that our eyes would be on him. I pray that you would just pull back the blinds a bit for us to see the glory of Christ and in some measure in the lives of these other saints. And so I I thank you for this time. Thank you for these brothers. I pray that you would meet with them in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you grew up in the 80s like I did, or, or maybe if you remember the movie Footloose, or uh, it, it appeared in another movie soundtrack, um, Shrek, I think Shrek 2, Bonnie Tyler's hit song, Holding Out for a Hero. goes like this. Where, are all the, where have all the good men gone, and where are all the gods? Where's the streetwise Hercules to fight the rising odds? Isn't there a white knight upon a fiery steed? Oh, I need page two. <laughs> Late at night I toss and I turn and I dream of what I need. Have any of you ever seen the video for this song? Don't even you know who Bonnie Tyler is? Oh wow. <laughs> She's got hair. Okay. You could picture on, you know, MTV just the 80s mu- music video. The chorus goes like this, I need a hero. I'm holding out for a hero till the end of the night. He's got to be strong and he's got to be fast and he's got to be fresh from the fight. I need a hero. I'm holding out for a hero to the morning light. He's got to be sure and it's got to be soon and he's got to be larger than life. And you can kind of hear the 80s schmaltziness coming out in that. But she's getting at something that I think resonates with all of us or at least it ought to. This is a universal human longing to find someone larger than life whose impact on us and and rescue of us we know we need. I mean, just think about this motion picture industry and, and how that every motion picture company knows that if they do a superhero movie and they release it in the summertime, they've got a blockbuster. It will sell. People will come watch it. How many iterations of Spider-Man do we need? <laughs> right? Or Batman Begins and Batman Beyond and The Dark Knight Rises and, what, you know, the story's been told. It's been done before. Um... The, the Avengers 2, I think, is coming out, right? And there's a Man of Steel movie at the end of this month releasing. And where, where does this... Wh- why does everyone connect with this storyline? Well, you guys know, right? Because our hearts were wired for that storyline. We all know that the helpless, hapless citizens who are being victimized by this evil power from without, our only hope is that someone from a realm beyond our own with powers that exceed our own is gonna intervene for us and protect us. We all know that innately. We love that story. Why? Because we were wired for the gospel. That's hero in the sense of savior. And the Bible reserves that category for one person. Anything in your life that rises to that level of savior that you look to for comfort, that is your security and strength, your rock or fortress in a time of trouble, That category is reserved for one person. The savior hero is Jesus. Only, ever, always. Anything that you look to as security, strength, rescue, that's not Jesus needs to be repented of and replaced with him. But there is another category of hero that the scriptures allow for us. In fact, commend to us. In fact, encourage us. Not the hero as savior, but the hero as example. This hero doesn't save us. But he will set the pace for us. He's he's an inspiration to us. Um, His his life can be a conviction to us. And the scriptures don't just just allow us to have that type of hero. The scriptures would commend for us to have that type of hero. That's a legitimate path toward Christ-likeness. And on the back of your outline, you have multiple texts. And I want to read those in a moment. And so there's one argument, right? There's one demonstration that the scriptures expect you will have heroes. But there's another way to approach this, and I want to approach it not just from the individual textual level. I want you to just think about the Bible as a whole for a moment. Think about the way the Bible's written. And I don't mean with, you know, on parchment and or papyrus and quill. I mean... Um, the shape of it, the, the the literary form of so much of this book. How much of, have you ever pondered how much of this book is written in story form? How much is narrative? Just run through the table of contents in your mind right now. How my, how many of these books are, are narrative, <coughs> largely Genesis, Exodus, good por- most of Exodus is narrative, uh, not so much of Leviticus, but Numbers portions of Numbers. Deuteronomy's law again, and then you have Joshua and Judges and Ruth, Esther, Nehemiah, First and Second Samuel. Did I skip some? First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. You jump ahead a little to the prophets now. Good portions of Daniel are narrative. The whole book of Jonah is narrative. You get to the New Testament. The first five books are narrative. The vast majority of of this book is in story form. And now think about what this book purports to be. This is the one book we have from the living God. It contains the most important truths that we need to know and believe to avoid a life of disaster and an afterlife of utter ruination. These are crucial things for us to know. And and it is a book of theology, but it's not like any theology that I've ever read. It's not like a systematic theology by Wayne Grudem. And that's a fine book, but it's just not written that way. Those theologies are written in the abstract and, 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 and in principle form. And so much of this book is concrete and real and tangible. And why? I mean, think about this. If these are the most important truths in the universe that we need to know and love and believe, that's a crazy, inefficient way to communicate it. I mean, if you're suffering from some physical malady truth, not just in the abstract, but you need to see it live. And loved oh andy thank you i I, I can pick that up, <laughs> thank you, brother. What I need is a good rail here so I can we need to see the truth loved and lived and 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 broken and fulfilled, apparently that's why God's given us so much of it in story form, which means what brothers? you need to know not just theology in concept, you need to know lives of real people. you need to see i mean. It's one thing to understand faith in the abstract. It's another thing to watch the life of Abraham. It's one thing to understand what it means to be saved. It's something else entirely to see it illustrated in the story of Moses and the children of Israel in the Exodus. If you really want to know what it means to be saved, or or how about this? Be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. Great truth. God in Christ has forgiven me. But that doesn't make my heart leap in the same way that watching Jesus on the shore of Galilee that early morning, as he restores Peter, the thrice denier, causes me to realize that I can be forgiven. I mean, Jesus is not long removed from dying, and Peter's not... Long removed from dying inside, as Jesus looked at him that night as Peter denied three times that he knew the Savior, and then you see Jesus on the shore with Peter saying, "Peter, do you love me? And you know, you know I love you, and Jesus commissions him for service, feed my sheep, and three times he does it, and the point's unmistakable Peter, you're back in ministry, I forgive you. That causes us to realize, wow, forgiveness it's one thing to hear. Um, what was it called, Brian's sermon last night? Use for the Useless. It's one thing to hear that. If you feel useless, God can use you. It's something else entirely to see the fearful, um, uh, weak, and sinful Gideon the schmuck being used, right? We see the story and we go, oh, that... So that's one argument from the broad panoramic perspective of the Scriptures. God wants us to see real stories. But then there's another level, and we could zoom right in and get really granular and look at the verses on the back of your outline. 1 Corinthians 4:16. I urge you, brothers, be imitators of me. This is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the truth, or in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Paul taught the gospel, of course, right? But he also taught ways of living, and he calls them my ways. And, and 1 Corinthians 1 that's probably the text that came to mind when you talked about this, or when you thought about this topic. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ, Paul says. But it's not just those two. Philippians 3:17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. 1 Thessalonians 1:5-7. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you. For your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction and with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. You see the transfer there. Paul's example, which the Thessalonians followed, which then other churches followed. So it's not just Paul setting himself up. Second Thessalonians 3 You yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we weren't idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it but with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It wasn't because we don't have the right, but it was to give you an example in ourselves for you to imitate. I used to think Paul was... He annoyed me when he talked like that. I was like, I would never talk like that to people. <laughs> like, like I'm better than Paul. Paul, you're so proud. You need to be like me. Which sounds a little proud, right? Right? Well, he's not the only one that talks that way. The writer of Hebrews talks that way. Hebrews 6, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have full assurance of hope to the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And then chapter 13, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. This is a thoroughly biblical concept. And I just want to ask you, brothers, as you fight the fight of faith, as you walk the walk of of, uh, to heaven, as you endeavor to be Christ-like, what are the practices that you follow to make that happen? Reading your Bible? Awesome. Continue doing that. And do it more. That's the fundamental one that will transform you. Prayer? Do that. But what about this? Examining the life of, of a proven, fruitful, saint of God who's gone before and adopt, deliberately adopt some of those practices into your own life. Imitate your leaders, is the way that writer says it. Imitate their faith. Well, it's kind of dangerous. Talk this way, maybe. And so I want to distinguish what the Bible doesn't mean and and what I think we shouldn't do. And so I just want to take a minute or two and talk about how not to have a hero. And I, I try to put it in three points. It's... When we say imitate... It's not simply obedience or submission to their word. Philippians 3:17, Paul says, Join in imitating me. He doesn't mean, do what I say. Listen with your ears to my words and then obey. He doesn't mean that. He means, look with your eyes at my life and do that, imitate me. Look at the rest of the verse, Philippians 3:17. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. He's talking about deliberate following of a pattern, not just words. So it's not simply obedience. It's, it's That's a different duty. That is a duty. That's just a different duty. It's not replication. What I mean by that is it's not just wholesale adopting everything that someone else believes or that someone else does into your own life, which can be really superficial and really shallow and actually kind of legalistic. Um, it's, it's, it's not just aping someone else's behaviors or, or mimicking their opinions, you know, or things like that. It's, it's wonderful that a Christian leader will start to have an impact on us. And we praise God for the grace in the lives of those men and women who really shape us. But sometimes it's easy to start to be drawn into following them so closely that we just start to sort of parrot what they say and, and do what they do and become little disciples, you know, of that particular person, and it's not just wholesale replication of, of the superficial features of someone else's life. Hebrews 13, 7, it's on your page there. What are we called to imitate, again, at the very end of the verse? Their faith. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Not their style, not their personality, not their standards necessarily, if you know my wife or had the opportunity to meet my wife, um, I, you would learn. I, I think she's a wonderful model to emulate in so many ways for men and women. Um, just just her grace and humility, her selflessness. She, she's she's the least self-conscious person that I know. That doesn't mean she's just, you know, goobery, This she's just, you know, that she draws attention to herself. She's she's not. She just doesn't think about herself, and that's awesome and wonderful. And she loves to disciple younger women. My wife has a personal standard against drinking that she holds to very strongly. And it might be easy for someone to get to know her and learn of that standard and then just completely uh, imbibe that standard and adopt it for themselves and just go, oh, well, Andrea doesn't drink. That must be what godly people do, so I'm not going to drink. And then really stumble when they meet another godly person who in fact does have a beer from time to time or, or, or some such, you know. And unless they drill down with Andrea and learn that she was raised in a household with her parents who were also, well, of course, raising her and her siblings, but also raising her cousins. A couple of cousins had to move in with them. And one of her cousins, Mindy, was the exact same age as Andrea. They went to the high school, the public high school together. And then their their their, their path completely forked. And Mindy went one way and Andrea went another way. And Andrea was athletic and, and, and played on the sports teams and all of that. And so she got in with that group. And Mindy partied. And her life is in the absolute tank now. I mean, her, Mindy's life is awful. And she's a wonderful girl and she's just... She's a grandma at 37, you know? I mean, it's just crazy, which isn't automatically bad, but it kind of tells you her story, right, Mindy's? And Andrea just saw what happened to Mindy, and she goes, why didn't that happen to me? And why did it happen to her? And Andrea's answer would be, one of the reasons it happened to Mindy is because of alcohol. I won't touch that because of that. And so there's a depth to that conviction that you might miss if you just wholesale, uh, wholesale adopt the the personal standard that's not imitating someone's faith just grabbing their standards and making them yours it's deeper than that there's one more thing it's not it's not veneration <clears throat> man friends don't we live in a hero worship age we are we, we so badly want to be around a personality larger than life it's in the culture the secular world you know, these, these celebrity websites and these celebrity TV shows and celebrity magazines, and you have to know the latest thing that the Kardashians are doing. Who are those people? Do you know? I don't have any idea. And there are other people who almost build their lives around them, and if something awful happens to Sue or what what's Kim? Is Kim a Kardashian? If something sad happens to Kim, their life is ruined because, oh, you know, that's it's so odd. What's really sad, though, is that that hero worship can and often does infiltrate the church actually i am of piper or i'm of macarthur or i'm of keller or i'm of driscoll or i'm of paul washer right those sorts of things nobody would really say that but the fact of the matter is that's they venerate that person they 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 esteem the individual all out of proportion and of course that's idolatry But it's an odd form of idolatry because it's not simply idolizing some other man. It's actually a form of self-worship, idolizing self. Why? Because deep down inside, our, our hearts tell us and we know we're not that important. But we wish we were. And we want people to think we are. And since we're not important, maybe the solution is to get around someone who is important. And if other people who like Piper know that I'm of Piper, they'll like me. What is that? It's a form of self-worship. You know, if if you're not a good basketball player, at least wear Nikes and you'll look like you're good. (laughs) And so by identifying with someone else's brand, it's not so much idolizing the brand, it's idolizing self and puffing self up with someone else's air, you know? That's veneration. That's not biblically understood imitation of someone else's life. Yes, we should thank. Yes, we should um, We should affirm. We should submit to people in authority. But we should not be in awe. We should not venerate. Why do I make this point? Well, Obviously, idol worship is a temptation in our own hearts, always, hero worship. But uh, but two reasons. One, because we always want to keep our eyes on Jesus. Any hero that we put in that status in our heart, I want to glean some things and imitate some things from this person's life. The best heroes are the ones who point us ultimately to the capital H hero. So we always want to keep our eyes on Jesus. We don't want to venerate anyone except him. But the other reason I point this out is, When your focus as you look at other people, or not your focus, but when your your goal as you look at other people is just to admire them, that's very passive. You'll sit back and watch and be affected emotionally and go, wow, that's really a cool person. That's not the biblical goal in these texts at all. The biblical goal is application. It's life change. It's not passivity. It's diligent, deliberate activity you look at someone else's life, what what does it mean to imitate? I try to put together this somewhat rhyming sequence. What it means to imitate someone in a biblical sense is careful observation, careful observation, looking at someone's life studying, careful observation which leads to deliberate application or imitation, which then leads to Christ-like transformation. That's imitation. It's active and deliberate. It's not just sitting back and being impressed. It's work. And that's what I want to call you to. So how can we have a hero? What, what is it, what's the biblical sense in which we would have a hero? Well, it, there, these texts, these seven texts that are on the back of your page, several of them are in a context that describes a specific situation And if you find yourself in this situation, sometimes it's really helpful to have a model that you're going to follow as you work through it. I want to talk about those four situations in just a moment. But not all the texts are that way. Some of them are just broad. You know, Paul Paul says, 1 Corinthians 4.16, I urge you then, be imitators of me. And in the context, he's just saying, follow the pattern of my life in all of its broad contours and in all of those... Features. Sometimes a hero of that sort in that in that really broad way is really helpful. And, and one of the reasons I was willing to tackle this topic is I have one of those. My the model for my pastoral ministry is John Newton. I deliberately pattern, what I do as a pastor and how I do it and how I think about pastoral ministry after John Newton. What do you know about that guy? He was a slave trader, wrote Amazing Grace, wrote Amazing Grace everyone knows that, or, or should. You you know that now. What else? Yeah. Yeah. Years yep. yep. Somebody said something over here. Yeah, he pastored in Only for for 12 years, I think, and then in, in, in a church in downtown London for 25 years. So, Okay, John Newton, I, I had to write a paper in seminary in a, in a history class on a certain era, and in that era there were various historical movements and figures and things like that, and I just picked John Newton and wrote a, wrote a paper on him and found his example to be so compelling Uh, truthfully, one of the reasons I'm a pastor today is the example of John Newton. I did not go to seminary intending to be a lead pastor. I wanted to get a Ph.D. and just teach at seminary. And John Newton's pastoral example was so powerful and so compelling, I thought, that would be really cool if God called me to that. And I don't want to go into the whole story for you because we don't have time to do that, but I just want to give you a couple of specific ways in which his model speaks to me and I deliberately follow it. One of them is in the way he handled Calvinism. He was a Calvinist, a thoroughgoing believer in God's grace, rescuing him from deadness in sin by God's choice, enabling him to respond in faith and repentance. That can be really controversial, right? That can split churches. It has split churches. People divide over it and fight. It was a controversy in Newton's day. Well, Newton was at tea with a friend, William J., and they were talking about this, and Newton said this. I am more of a Calvinist than anything else, but I use my Calvinism in my writing and in my preaching like I use this sugar. And he took a lump and put it in his teacup and stirred it. And he said, I don't give it, my Calvinism, alone and whole, but mixed and diluted. And I don't think he means watered down. I think he means pervasive. Right? I mean, a whole sugar cube. Who eats that? That's not normal. I don't know. Maybe you do. <laughs> I, have, I have a son who would, no doubt. And I hope his grandma has locked up the sweets this weekend while we're away. What, what Newton's saying is there's a way to handle the doctrines of grace. that just... So I read that, and I went, okay, I'm going to this church in Colorado, and I don't know how these people receive these things, but this matters to me. It matters to me pastorally how you view the sovereignty of God. And it'll be really practical in people's lives when they hit patches of suffering. So what am I going to do about this? And I just thought, I'm just going to preach faithful through through passages. We're not going to have a weekend seminar on, you know, tulip or something. I'm just going to proclaim the supremacy of God that is so surpassing of anything we can imagine. And the depth of our need that is so, so much worse than we ever thought. That when we come to Ephesians chapter 1 and we read he chose you in him before the foundation of the world, the people will go, oh, of course he did. How could he not? He's glorious and great. I'm broken and needy. I bring nothing to this equation. Of course he did. And, and then Calvinism will resonate in their hearts. It's not quite that easy, but I did preach through Ephesians, and no one left. They left after Ephesians. Um, another example... From, from Newton's life, is just his continued amazement at God's grace in saving him. Guys, we have been rescued from the most furious opponent ever imagined, God himself, by the intervention of God himself. That's shocking. And it doesn't get into everybody. But it did get into you. And it's so easy to just get real chill about that and just, you know. Newton was saved... For fifty-five every every anniversary of his conversion he would he would observe with prayer and fasting all day, and he would journal. And fifty-five years after that storm at sea where he's you know afraid for his life and he repents, fifty-five years after his conversion, he writes in his journal, Well may I say, with wonder and gratitude, why me, O Lord? Why me? I want that kind of wonderment at being, I want to be surprised every day that the gospel got me, that it got me. And Newton helps me with that. Um, And It's amazing because at this point in his life, he was a well-known guy. He was a sought-after speaker. Um, Princeton University offered him an honorary doctorate. This is another way he is such a model. He turned it down. He's like, no, I'm good. I I had one university. I learned on the shores of Africa. And uh, it's, it's anyway a long story, but. He turned him down on an honorary doctorate. So humble, so well-known, and still so amazed that God's grace got him. So the point here is, sometimes you'll find a life that, that speaks to you in all all sectors, you know, all parts of, of your life. But sometimes you're in a specific situation, and a model can be really helpful. for situations. Number one, or, or or four aspects, I guess, of life, <coughs> our work ethic, or our productivity. That text in Second Thessalonians 3, you have it on the back of your outline. If you look at it again, you'll notice what Paul's talking about in imitation here. It's not just imitation in general. There's a very specific focus to it. You yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. We didn't eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It wasn't because we don't have the right, but it was to give you, an ex- to give you in ourselves an example to imitate, an example of hard work. A couple of weeks ago, I turned 40. <laughs> oh, man. I've been looking forward to being 40 because as a pastor you know, you counsel people, you, you you develop close relationships with people. And in my 20s, it was impossible. I just, I felt so out of my I didn't have the experience, right? But I also felt awkward. I mean, you know, approaching a 70-year-old fellow who's walked with the Lord for 60 years and say, hey, how are your devotions? I mean, that, you know, pastoral duty just felt odd. And, and so I've been waiting, you know, to get older and all this. I, I had this odd experience, though, as I was approaching 40, this sort of Shifting into neutral kind of feeling like, okay. I'm where I'm going to be. I don't plan to change churches. I'm certainly not going to change wives, the kids I have or the kids I'm going to have. This is my life. It is what it is. I want to die at this house and be buried in the backyard. I'm, it's, I'm here. I'm chill. And and. Uh, <laughs> and then I read about Russell Moore, who's the Dean of the School of Theology at Southern Seminary who was just asked to be the head of the Southern Baptist organization called the Religious Liberty and Ethics Foundation. It's an extremely important, I think, extremely important position. That guy, the head of that, the president of that organization in past administrations has hobnobbed with the president. He represents conservative evangelicalism in the culture in a lot of ways. He speaks to other Christians as to how we should view certain issues and respond to them. And I went, wow, Russ is going to be the president of that. He's already a seminary professor, he's the father of five boys, the husband of a wife, a pastor at his church, he preaches regularly, he writes often on the internet, he maintains a podcast that's really cool called The Cross and the Jukebox, where sometimes current songs, like he did, um, what's that, that country singer, uh, oh, I don't remember who, came out with that, what is it, Accidental Racist, LL Cool J, and and they did this, Who? Yeah, 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 Brad Paisley and LL Cool J did this song, Accidental Racist, brand new song, huge scandal. Russ goes, hey, I'm going to deal with that on the cross in the jukebox. So he does all these things, and he's 41. And I'm like, oh, he's done more in his 41 years than I could do in my life. I don't think it's time to shift into neutral, you know. And so the challenge of someone else's life, well, here's, here's, here's one for you. Spurgeon led a church of 4,000 members. Of course, he preached almost weekly sermons, and by the end of his life, those sermons filled 63 volumes. You add those 63 volumes to the 140-plus books that he himself wrote, and it's the largest body of work of anyone in the English language. But in addition to that, he averaged 500 letters per week that he wrote people with his hand. He read six books a week, And he comprehended them and remembered them to the point where he could pull a book off the shelf and show you where the quote is. He edited a newsletter called The Sword and the Trowel. He managed an orphanage and over 65 other organizations, which he himself founded. And at his 50th birthday, one of his contemporaries said, Charles does the work of 50 ordinary men. And I think that's about right. Sometimes it's helpful for us to see the standard someone else sets and go... It's okay for me to work when I'm tired. I could produce a little bit more rather than, you know, we live in an age where it's like, whoa, protect your health. You haven't got your health. You haven't got anything. Princess Bride. Um, and, and right? And so we need that idol of our contemporary culture of wellness that we sacrifice so much productivity to. Now, we can overwork too, right? We can We can be workaholics and destroy our family and our health and all that in the process, but depends on your temptation. So, the situation of of productivity, uh, the the next one is suffering. We could really use models and examples when we face rough patches. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6 and 7, Paul writes, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. What does he mean, they imitated him? Well, he describes his situation in chapter 2, verse 2, and that's not on your notes, so let me just read it to you. First Thessalonians 2, 2, Paul says, Though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, when we came to you, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel in the midst of much conflict. So what was Paul's situation? Deep suffering, all sorts of affliction for the sake of the gospel. Look at how he says the Thessalonians followed his example. Back in the text, 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. That's how they imitated Paul. He was suffering in spreading the gospel. They suffered for believing the gospel. And his point is, you saw a suffering servant, and that emboldened you or or empowered you to suffer as well. Have you ever been through... Deep water and found incredible help in the example of someone else as they went through suffering. and God was with them. His promises held. He was faithful. Jonathan Edwards went to be the uh, president of a university and. Smallpox was ravaging the area and he wanted to set a good example for the student body. And so he received the smallpox inoculation. And he contracted smallpox and died. That would seem maybe to be a backfiring strategy. Perhaps students wouldn't want the immunization after it killed him. But of course, that was a huge shock and surprise to his wife and his children. And when Sarah Edwards heard that news, she wrote a letter to the kids, and in it she said this. What shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had your father for so long. But my God lives and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God and there I live and love to be. You can just hear in that letter to her kids the the deep, Sorrow at losing her husband, the recognition of God's sovereignty in this, and the willingness to, to endure this, still loving God, still trusting God. That simple letter is a powerful help to us in times of suffering. Just seeing how someone else endured the loss of a spouse unexpectedly. There's another situation that Paul talks about where imitation is especially helpful, and that's in 1 Corinthians 11, 1. There's a context, of course, to 1 Corinthians 11.1 that's not included. 11.1 probably should have been included in chapter 10, because it's there that Paul sets up why he says, imitate me like I imitate Christ. Doing what? In what way? Well, 1 Corinthians 10.32 says this, Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but the advantage of many so that they may be saved, be imitators of me in this as I am of Christ in this. What's the point? His point is that he took on himself burdens or divested himself of liberties for the sake of the gospel. And that's what he's encouraging these people to follow him in. And that's why he says, imitate me in this as I imitate the Lord. Jesus himself, right, took humanity a huge, huge, can I get a better word than huge? An infinite condescension and limitation of, 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 of who he was for the sake of the gospel. And Paul says, I made myself uncomfortable at times reaching out to people. Uh, surrendered liberties and freedoms to reach out to people? Well, sometimes that can be a thorny path to walk. How far do you go to to reach unsaved people? How far do you go in becoming like them, you know, if you will? You know what can be really helpful? What can really illuminate the answer to that question? What did saints of the past do? Might not have had the exact situation as you do, but they faced the same question. It can be really helpful. You know this this matter of following the example of others is not just about our own seeing Christ, growing in Christ, becoming like Christ. It's also about the spread of the message about Christ. We want to follow others' example for the sake of the gospel, for it to spread. Then number four, the question of legacy, what what sort of what sort of fruit does someone's life bear? Was their approach? Was their approach vindicated or or verified by long-term success? Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Do you see that? Consider the outcome of their way of life. Piper recommends that if you're going to have a hero that you emulate, that he be dead. Eventually you will be too, and so you'll get that part of his example right. (laughs) But that's not the reason. The reason is you can see the outcome of his way of life and evaluate, is this a good model to follow? And you can also avoid the pain of following a hero who falls into sin. Pick one who's dead. That's probably a good idea. Uh, I I mentioned that I try to emulate the ministry of John Newton. Well, there is one way in which, there, there are probably several, but one in particular that I deliberately don't follow Newton's example and it was in how he how he approached the, the matter of heresy. He was a pastor, of course, and pastors have to deal with false teaching. And Newton said this, My principal method of defeating heresy is by establishing truth. One proposes to fill a bushel with tares. If I can fill it first with wheat, I will defy his attempts. And so Newton's rules seem to be Avoid controversy and 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 prevent heresy by just establishing truth. Be proactive. You don't have to react to heresies. Sounds like a good strategy. Is it? Well, we can look at the outcome of his life and know. It wasn't very long after he left the church in Olney that almost the entire congregation fell into apostasy. There were a number of factors at work. They're probably not all Newton's fault but it appears that at minimum this wasn't a helpful strategy for dealing with heresy. And we know that from the scriptures. Pastors are not only supposed to teach truth, they have to refute error. So look at the outcome of their way of life. See what their legacy is. Let's see, where are we at? make a couple quick applications and then take time for questions. Um, one application that I want to suggest to you is that you cultivate discontent with where you're at right now. I don't mean discontent in general that creates a complaining spirit. I mean discontent with where you are. If you're content with where you are, why imitate anyone else? You've arrived. Just coast. We should be continually dissatisfied with what we see in ourselves. And not just dissatisfied so we feel crummy, dissatisfied so that we run to the cross for grace and then we take deliberate steps to change. So, so cultivate discontent. Don't just settle. Get 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 really well acquainted with the word change, and not in a red green show kind of way, right? The man's prayer. You guys say that with me. I'm a man, but I can change, if I have to, I guess. That prayer sucks. It does. It's hilarious, but it's awful because it's so accurate in its caricature of men no let's go yes honey do you have an idea for how i can get better please feed it to me that's pie in the sky that's never going to be me but we can cultivate cultivate discontent here's another one this is hopefully an obvious application read biography there are some on the table in there um grab those um did anybody recognize the bonnie tyler song can i can i at least get a connection with somebody there you know what? I, I, I just saw your hand first. I'm going to give you this book. And it's all about John Newton, so enjoy. Thank you so much. Um, read biographies. Get, get them. Figure out. Who in history can I emulate? Um, one more. One more application. And then I want to set this whole thing in a gospel context. Attest yourself by, by this standard. It's sometimes easy to just look at our lives and go, how am I doing in this area and I'm not reaching my expectations and so I need to work here or whatever. Test yourself by this standard. What would someone's life be if they followed my example? If men at your church took into their own lives your way of handling leisure, of treating your wife, your, your physical fitness, your hobbies, your character, your spiritual disciplines, your priorities, if they adopted all of that into their lives, what would they turn out like? In other words, can you say, follow me as I follow Christ? fellows"? we're saints. The Bible calls us saints. What does that mean? It means we are holy ones. Mary... The Virgin Mary was not the only bearer of God who ever walked the planet. If you're a saint, you are one too. Not in the same sense, of course, right? But you're a saint. You have the holy within you. You should be able to say, follow me as I follow Christ. Not because you're great, but because you have greatness in you. And and, gosh, that sounds so... You know what I mean by that? I hope you do. The Holy Spirit in you makes you able to say that. Let me set this in a gospel context. Um, mm, I have a point that I want to make, and I don't think I have time. We'll see how the questions go. If I have time, I'll come back to it. Hebrews chapter 11, Piper calls a mandate to read biography. I think he's probably right. You know Hebrews 11, right? The, The hall of faith, all the great heroes of the faith, all these stories. This writer pulls up all of these names, assuming that his readers will know most of these stories. What does he do after he lists that whole litany of of heroes of the faith? You get to Hebrews chapter 12, and he says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let's lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race set before us. Same sentence, looking unto Jesus, looking unto Jesus. He didn't... He didn't abbreviate the Hall of Faith. He just created tension waiting for us to go, ah, what about the Savior? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the, endured, endured what? The cross. Do you know where he takes our attention? After all of these great heroes of the faith, he goes, do you know what you need? Do you know what you really need? You don't just need an example, capital E. Because your problem is not just that you don't know what you should do or you're not inspired to do it. Your problem's not that. You don't primarily need an example. Your problem is you're under the wrath of God because you don't want to do what you should. And he can't live with you. His heaven is perfect and awesome and wonderful, and the people who live there are perfect and awesome and wonderful. And so he can't... You're under the wrath of God. You need a capital S, SAVIOR. And so here's the challenge to you that puts this in a gospel context. The very best heroes are the ones who give us a reflection of the Savior. And so as you look up to them and as you look ahead to them, as they're out ahead of you, look all the way up. See in them reflections of the Savior. And I think I do want to make this point here real quickly, the one that I wasn't going to end then. Some brothers take the attitude, hey, it's just Jesus and me. I got all I need with him. I'm not going to have a hero. I'm good, okay? If that's really your attitude, for all the mo- all the more you will benefit from having someone else in your life whom you emulate. Why? In the book of the Four Loves, C. S. Lewis brings out an amazing point about friendship. He was close friends with two fellas, Ronald and Charles, and Charles passed away. And when Charles passed away, Lewis wrote in the Four Loves, "I thought when Charles passed, I would have more of Ronald." because I wouldn't share him with anyone else. It would just be me and him. But in fact, I discovered that with Charles gone, I got less of Ronald, because there were aspects of Ronald that only Charles could bring out. There were things in his character, stories he would tell, jokes that he would respond to, that I couldn't bring out without Charles there. I think that's fascinating. And the need for worshiping God in community, why? Because there are in him so many glories that you can't see them all on your own. It's not until you watch the life of someone else and it brings out from the person of God and the glory of Christ an aspect of his character you never would have seen on your own that you realize, wow, I need these other brothers to help me see all there is of Jesus. Does that make sense? So it is ultimately all about him. All right? So that's all I have to say. Any questions or comments? <coughs> yeah. Hey, uh, could you just comment on how you would guide your children in uh, their selection of heroes? <coughs> uh, how, how you help them think through that? I think of the Green Lantern. Totally, totally, totally. Yeah, um, uh, three things come immediately to mind. I'll say all three of them. Number one, I want my kids around real living people who aren't their parents, but are well ahead of them in the Christian life. So in our care group, it's really important to us that my kids get around other adults who know me and love me, but also know them and love them. And so they will learn from the example of these other real-life... Because kids are so concrete. A story will grip them, and I'm going to talk about that in a second. But a real-life additional adult that they can just watch and that they know knows their name and loves them, I want my kids around other people, and that's why I'm so thankful to God for the church. You know, I can't get my parenting done by myself. Um, The next thing that came to mind is I do encourage my kids to read biography, and there are piles of them. There there are these little books... um, Ten boys who blah blah blah. Do you know those books? Does anybody know those books? No, no one's given it to me. Yeah, ten ten boys who like change the world, and ten boys who uh, something something. There's like four or five of these titles, and they're just short little stories. And of course, I have four boys, so I try to do boy things or boy stories. So I do try to get them around biography, you know, get them, get them exposed to that. The third thing that comes to mind is, we went to see the Avengers. I deliberately take my boys to hero stories and things like that because they're boys; they love that. And then we're leaving the theater, and they're, man, I'm, I'm oh, I am forget the guy's name, I'm Hawkeye, you know. I'm Hulk. And I'm like, hey, guys, that's, that's awesome. Um, I'm Black Widow, you know, and they're like, yeah, you're weird. And, uh, <laughs> and then, because I had their attention for a second, I said, what were you guys thinking when those six Avengers are back-to-back in that circle and those weird creatures are coming out of the sky and they're just getting crushed, they're getting hammered, And you know it's going to turn out okay because it's a movie and it's about the Avengers, not about the conquering weirdos. And um, so you know it's going to turn around here. But at that moment, I mean, think about this, boys. Why are they there? They've got nothing to gain. Thor isn't even from that planet. And they don't connect. Well, Dad, it's fiction. Thor's not from anywhere. Why should I be thinking about that? They're just like, oh, yeah, why is Thor there? He's got nothing to gain. This isn't his planet. These aren't his people. He came from some other realm altogether. Why is he fighting these these bad guys? I said, boys, what was going on there? What was that an example of? Individuals from another realm come into ours and take the brunt of this thing. And and when you thought all was lost, suddenly the whole thing turns around and they win. And one of my boys goes, yeah, Dad, it's like you always say, there's only one story. It's about Jesus. (laughs) And I was like, yes! So I don't steer him away from the Green Lantern. I just tell him, you know, a boy who intends to live as a boy doesn't fall in love with boys in the same way he does with girls, you know, or a girl. A girl. (laughs) Sexual perversion can take a lot of forms, so I don't want to say girls. Right? So uh, that, that would be my answer to that, I guess. Any other questions? I think we're at our time. Okay, thanks for your attention. Let me pray. Father, where would we be without Jesus? Crushed, hopeless, in despair, ruined, broken. And where would we be without saints who have gone before showing us it can be done? We have no idea because you've graced us with their lives and we thank you. And so I pray that you would leverage every resource, that you would challenge these brothers to to latch on to a hero of the faith, to go to biography as a help in times of suffering, to to put their hand to the plow and be more productive for you because of the example of Spurgeon. Uh, Help them leave a legacy. Help them be an example. And I pray it all for our great joy in you and for the glory of Jesus, in whose name I pray.